when Megan got here this morning, she said, I drove here this morning and uh, I won't tell you what Cheryl said after that, (laughs) but it's kind of exciting to see that someone who's been serving our church in different ways since sixth grade is, uh, you know, it'll be way easier to get her to volunteer for things when she has her driver's license. That's all I'm saying. I'm pretty excited. So this morning we are in our sixth week of this series um, on Elijah and Elisha. We have, uh, we spent three weeks just with Elijah and now this is our sixth week that Elisha gets to be one of the characters that we're studying. And we saw the difference in their two ministries last week. We saw that when Elijah was ministering, more often than not, the ministry that God called him to was kind of rebuking the kings, saying, hey, or specifically Ahab, but saying, hey, this is not the way it should be. This is not the way that you lead God's people. Whereas Elisha has a very different ministry as opposed to being God's messenger to the kings who are disappointing God. Elisha gets to come and say to God's people who are being mistreated and misled by these kings, God is still here. God is still in charge. God is still faithful. Even when wickedness prevails, God is still God. So last week we saw that there were two different women, uh, both on the absolute verge of isolation. They were in different economic situations, but they were both about to be alone with nowhere to turn to but God. One was about to lose her sons because her, her husband had recently died and he had so many debts that her sons were about to be hauled off into indentured servitude. And the other one, she married rich, but she didn't have a male heir. And in that society, when her husband died, all of his possessions would pass to the next closest male relative and God provided her with a son. And then God healed that son uh, once he died of a strange sickness later on in that chapter. This morning, we're going to look at three different events. Two of them are recorded together. The third is, is very similar, but it actually comes after the passage that we're going to cover next week in Second Kings chapter 5. But all three of these events, these miracles that we're looking at, Um, are not two isolated women who are all by themselves, but rather all these miracles happen to a group of men. We're told that they're the sons of the prophets who are training to become God's servants. They're training and studying to become prophets. And we see three different miracles that happen specifically to and for these people who are preparing to serve God. So this morning we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4 and then 2 Kings chapter six. I'm going to pray and then we are diving in. God, you're good and you're faithful. I thank you that you have a purpose and a plan. And even when things look dire, even when things look as though they are not going the way we want or not going the way they should, that doesn't mean that you are not in control. And that doesn't mean that you cannot intervene. God, thank you that you are a God who intervenes. Thank you that you are a God who protects and you are a God who provides. This morning, I pray that we would see from our own stories, that we would see from our own lives times when you have stepped up in ways that we didn't notice, in ways that we didn't think were possible, and yet we can have faith in knowing that you are a God who intervenes on our behalf. God bless us as we study your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We as a church uh, really like to eat. It's one of the things that we do best around here, I think. Um, I 
If you have not been invited yet, let me invite you over to our fellowship hall after service. We, we do it up big each and every week. And I tell everybody, it is what our church does best. There are a lot of things that we do really, really well as a church. But I think if you went to every other church around the country, you'd say, ooh, this church has way better preaching and this church might have a little bit better music. And, you know, there's some other things. <laughs> I said a little bit better. I didn't say a better drummer, Jeff. I just said, you know, <laughs> overall. I'm just saying there are things that other churches do really well. But the thing that I think we do absolutely best as a church is we eat really well. And if you read the book of Acts, that's pretty important. That's a pretty big thing that churches are supposed to do together. And I think that we just excel as, at it. I don't think there's any church that does it better than we do. The church that I grew up in, um, we did something similar. We didn't eat each and every Sunday morning after service. We had Sunday evening services. And once a month, um, we had something called the afterglow. It sounded very fancy, I tell you. And it was one of these things where, you know, if your last name started with A through L, you had to bring an entree. And if it was M through Z, you brought a dessert and then it flipped flop the next month. And it had a bunch of things that I really enjoyed eating as a child 30 years ago. But the weirdest combinations would come out of these afterglows. In my brain, when I think about all of the Sunday nights that I ate at Berea Baptist Church as a child, what comes to mind is uh, tuna casserole next to an egg salad sandwich and a jello mold. And I don't know how those things go together, but somehow when everybody is kind of doing their own thing, different things happen. And I'm a big fan of all three of those things individually. Together, it was weird. But um, Elisha performed two separate miracles here in 2 Kings chapter 4, both involving God's people eating together. We talk about God's people eating together as though it's a big part of church life and Acts. But here, way back, you know, 800 years before the book of Acts, was written or before the events of the book of Acts took place, we have God's people eating together and it was a big deal then as well. But before we get into the text, I want to bring a little bit of a clarity to these miracles. When we read in our scriptures about God doing miracles, whether it's here in second Kings or whether it's in Jesus's day or it's in the book of Acts, when, when we read about these events, we think, oh neat, there's like this little thing that happens and something was one way and now it's different. But I want us to, to just pause for a second and acknowledge that these are not magic tricks. These are real events that happened to real people in real places, and they're not done to wow a crowd or just to get attention. But specifically in Jesus's ministry, when he was being critiqued and questioned about his miracles, this is what he said they were. In Luke chapter 11, he says this, he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. That's the key to these miracles that we see through scriptures. Miracles are God's kingdom breaking through reality. And it is like a glimpse of what the eternal kingdom of God is going to be like. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When we see these stories, when we read these accounts and we ask, well, what is a miracle? It's easy to say, well, a miracle is when God does something that is contrary to nature. You know, the seas part, the earth rotation stops and, you know, the sun stands still for 24 hours. The dead become undead. Miracles are contrary to nature. But the truth is that miracles are not contrary to nature, but rather that miracles are contrary to the fall. 
They're contrary to the way that things are now in the post garden of Eden world. And they are a glimpse of what things are going to be like in the eternal kingdom of our heavenly father. Miracles are a reminder to the way that things ought to be pointing forward to the day when Jesus returns and all will be made right. We've seen that already in this chapter. We looked uh, last week and we saw debts being repaid. We saw barrenness gone. We saw the dead raised. This chapter is a glimpse that there is a great reversal coming and it's not a reversal of nature, but rather it is a reversal of sin and it is when God and his kingdom are reigning. His glory is what miracles are about. Miracles that we read in scripture are a glimpse of God's glory that we are going to get to see more and more throughout eternity. But now we have two miracles happening here at a church potluck, which is really an interesting setting for a miracle to happen. Um, When Melissa was in high school, we had just started dating. She was a senior in high school. I was a sophomore in college. And she was uh, this big theater nerd at her school. She was trying out for every play there was. And her high school was doing the, uh, the play Nonsense. I don't know if anyone's familiar. But the premise of this play is there's a group of nuns. And someone made stew. And it made everybody sick. And now there's like six dead nuns in the freezer. And they have to raise money to bury them before the health department comes. And this is a high school play that, you know, that high school uh, theater kids are doing. And so when I read this passage, it makes me think back to, you know, 20 some years ago when Melissa was playing a nun trying to raise money to bury her nun colleagues. I don't know. It was weird. But ask me sometime. I've got a really funny picture of Melissa dressed as a nun. Um, so here is what happens in Second Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 38. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. Gilgal is kind of no man's land. It was between the northern kingdom of Judah and the southern kingdom of, or the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. It was located close enough to both capitals, Jerusalem and Samaria, where the prophets that were you know, encamped there and that were studying there, they could go to either king or either kingdom and speak truth to power in those kingdoms. But then they could also not take sides and they could retreat to this area kind of over by the Jordan river. That was kind of seen as, as a bit of a wilderness where neither King was really going to kind of be overreaching that much. And it's kind of assumed that these prophets, when we read about the company of the prophets or the sons of the prophets, depending on the translation that you are looking at, that they are all in training. They're being mentored here by Elisha and some of the older prophets. They're being prepared for future ministry. The temple structure at that point didn't really exist. There was no temple in the Northern kingdom that actually functioned. And in the Southern kingdom, the priesthood had become so corrupted that the nation didn't really see the temple as the place of worship anymore, but rather wherever these prophets were is where the nation saw um, the, the center of worship. And so these prophets are being trained for ministry and it's basically Bible college, right? You have a bunch of guys together and just like Bible college, they're hungry and they are broke. And what do you eat when you're hungry and broke? You eat soup, you eat ramen noodles, right? Like how far can we stretch this? How much more liquid can we throw into it? And so Elijah is teaching and he says, hey, do you know what? Um, we need to make some famine stew. And he says to his servant, we met him last week. His name is Gehazi. He says, hey, um, go put on a pot. We're going to start to make some stew. Everybody's hungry. 
You start making this. I'm going to finish my lesson to these guys here. And when I'm done teaching, as soon as I say amen, you can start ladling it all out. And this is going to get bad here in a moment. It could get bad. He fixes it. Don't worry. It doesn't get super bad. But I want us to notice that these guys are hungry. There is a famine in the land. There are people starving everywhere. When there was a famine in the land, in that society, that meant that everybody was out of money real quick. And instead of trying to procure employment, instead of saying, hey, how can I get ahead? How can I use this for my advantage? What can I do? You know, God has shown me some favor. What can I do to maybe set my family up so that the next time this happens, they're in a better situation than the other families around us? These prophets are saying, in spite of all of that, we are going to gather around and study God's word together. We're going to gather around and see what God is doing. They've made their relationship with God the priority over even feeding themselves. And as a result, God rewards them. The whole country is hungry, but they are also hungry for God's word to know how to better serve him. And um, one of the prophets was a little bit too ambitious in his desire to help out. Um, One of them went into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine and picked as many of the gourds as his garment could hold. When he returned, he cut them up into the, so- into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat, they cried out, Man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. So here's this picture of this guy. In my brain, he's like, you know, 19 years old, and he goes out and he's going to, you know, He's going to help feed everybody. And I don't, I don't know who this guy was. Maybe we'll get to heaven. Like, can you tell me that story? What did you do? Like, right. He's like, sorry, my parents didn't actually have a farm. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to help. Um, But so there's a gourd probably about the size of an apple and it's growing on a vine. So picture like a watermelon with something like, you know, vine with something growing on the end. And he thinks this looks good. And so he starts picking them up and there seems to be so many of them. Remember there's a, Famine. Nothing is growing in that land. If you are in a place where nothing is growing and there's one thing growing, maybe that's a weed. I don't know. But so he starts picking the only thing that's growing, and we're told as much as his garment can hold. So you can imagine you've you've done this. Maybe you like pick blackberries or whatever, and you like hold your shirt out and you start putting them in there. He's doing that like with a big tunic. So he's got pounds and pounds and pounds. We know from later that there's at least a hundred prophets at this school. And he loads them all up, as many as he can get. And without, you know, going back and asking the chef, hey, do you know what this is? Or finding, you know, someone who knows something. He just starts chopping it up and throwing it into this giant stack, or to this giant pot of stew. He manages to get back. He, he doesn't lose all the stuff that he had. He goes, he, he cuts it up. He drops it in. It starts to smell good. Everyone's like, hey, Elisha's done teaching. Um, It's finally time to start eating. Soup is served. They start ladling it. And immediately people start getting sick. And not like kind of sick, really sick. With this this, uh, phrase, I love this in verse 40. Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. I don't know how that... How is that not a worship song? But that's, uh, that's, a, verse, that's a verse we got to get it, sing on, on a Sunday morning. Um, but this, this death in the pot is literally, this is poisonous. This is not, ooh, this isn't cooked just right. Chicken needs more time. This is, no, no, this is bad. People are dying from this. I wish we had more information, but we, we don't. This is just what we have. Um, It doesn't just taste bad, but rather it is poisonous. And here's the situation. Remember, there is a famine in the land. 
This was most likely going to be the one meal this day that these men were going to eat. They can't just dump out the stew, whatever little meat was in there, whatever vegetables were in there. That was all they had. That was it. They couldn't just get rid of the little bit of food that they had. And yet now it couldn't be eaten. This is not just a spoiled dish. This is a tragedy. And then Elisha says, get some flour. So he really wasn't much of a chef either. Uh, He says, get some flour, put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Again, I wish we had more information. I wish if there was like a chemical reaction, we don't know. Um, But here's the sign of how much these guys trust him. He's like, oh, let me sprinkle some of this in. This used to be poisonous. Now it's not have a bowl. And they eat and they're fine. That was a whole lot of trust that these men had. They pour it in some flour. They scoop it out. The, The recipe has been changed and... There is now no harm coming from this dish. This event shows us that God has the power power to make harmful things innocuous. In Luke chapter 10, this is what Jesus tells his disciples as he's sending them out. He says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. A glimpse of what God's kingdom will be like is the things that people expect to cause harm to God's people God says, no, not going to harm my people. I am a God who will protect my people. As well as his care and provision is for his own, these men were God's servants and God said, nothing is going to harm them. I'm not going to let this gourd, I'm not going to let this kind of inept prophet in training who should not be a chef in training, I'm not going to let him impact the future plans that I have for these servants of mine. The passage continues here in verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from his first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. So here we have this beautiful picture. We have someone who's coming to bring his first fruits to the man of God and to God's servants. But the first thing that we notice about this guy is where he is from. He is from Baal Shalashah. In the nation of Israel, in the Holy Land, a land set apart by God for his people, there is a city that is essentially named Baal Sustains. This idol worship, this worship of Baal, had become so ingrained into society that they were either establishing new cities or renaming existing cities all after a false God. And in that city, there is someone who lives there that says, no, no, that's not my God. Baal is not the one sustaining me. Yahweh is the one sustaining me. And so he goes and he takes his first fruits to Elisha and to the men of God and says, hey, I know where I'm from. I know that I am from this town that has kind of turned its back on God, but I know who I am in light of who my God is. And so here is my offering to God's people. There's hope here. Even in the midst of a society that has become corrupted, there is a holdout. There is this one guy who says, no, I still remember what the Mosaic law says. I remember that I'm supposed to bring my first fruits to honor God and I'm going to give these to God's servants. 
And here's this great act of faith that we see from this unnamed person. We have no idea who he is, but we know that there's a famine going on. We know that there's not enough food going around for anyone. And this guy brings his first meager, the, the meager parts of his first harvest to God to say, God, here is a way that I'm going to honor you. Here's a way I'm going to honor those who are serving you. And Elisha says, thanks for the bread. By the way, bread goes great with soup. Guys, I've got a plan. Why don't we split this bread up and we can all eat it with our famine stew. It sounds delicious. And he says to Gehazi, his servant, hey, uh, start passing this out so that everybody can have some bread to go with their, with their stew. When we think a loaf of bread, we think like a loaf of bread, but these were not, you know, 20 slices with a heel that you throw away on each end. These were more like pitas. Like they were, they were not big. They were almost like pancake size. They were very flat. And so Gehazi, he, he looks at these loaves of bread and says, there's no way. There's 20 of them. There's a hundred hungry prophets. This isn't going to work. He says in verse 43, how can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked, but Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Sure enough, God says, if I say something is enough, it's enough. If I say something is plenty, it will be plenty. This bread is passed from hand to hand and every single one of those hundred men gets his dinner. Now we hear this story and we're like, yeah, but Jesus fed like 5,000. A hundred is cool, but it's not 5,000. But those 5,000 people were people that were coming to observe, coming to see if Jesus was for them. These hundred, these prophets were all in. These prophets had already said, God, I am, I'm giving you all I have, we saw last week that one of the prophets was in so much debt that his sons were going to be sold into indentured servitude, and yet he was pursuing service to God rather than trying to make back this money that he owed. These guys were all in on their service to God, and God is showing them here, hey, it might not look like a bunch, but I promise you, it is enough. It might not look like a big amount, but I promise you, if I say it will sustain you, it will sustain you. Two chapters later, Elisha is once again with these men and their, their company or their school of prophets that were told the sons of the prophets, um, they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Their ministry is being noticed by others. People are saying, hey, Maybe ministry isn't such a bad vocation to recommend to my child. And so the school of the prophets or the sons of the prophets, uh, they are increasing. And so I'm going to just read this whole passage to save us a little bit of time. But we're here in 2 Kings chapter 6 and we're, um, yes, chapter 6. And we're going to look at the first seven verses. It says this, the company of the prophets said to Elisha, look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place there for us to meet. And he said, go. Then one of them said, won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied. And he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron ax head fell into the water. Oh no, there we go. Um, as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh no, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. 
the man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. Now, the reason that this rarely heard from story is so important and so practical for us today is because this is about crisis. The first two miracles that we looked at, they were about provision. They were about protection. God is going to provide. Hey, when things look bleak, God is going to provide. But this is an actual crisis that this guy is going through. Something had happened to one of these sons of the prophets, and he was in a real fix. As a student in this ancient school of the prophets, he was very, very poor. Um, I, I get it. I, spent, I was a full-time student until I was about 30. I'm familiar with how this works. And this guy is, he is destitute. Proverbs chapter four says, though it cost everything you have, gain understanding. And the school of the prophets, those guys, they were, they were doing this. They were saying, I'm going to spend all of my time, all of my energy learning how to better serve God. And that is what they did last week. Like I said before, we saw how one of the widows of these prophets was so destitute that her sons were about to be forced into indentured servitude until their deceased father's debts had been paid off. And this morning we saw how um, these guys were so hungry, they were so poor, that they were willing to eat mystery meat stew just so they could have something to eat. These guys were broke. And so when it came to building this new place for their school, these students had to build it themselves. And this particular student was so poor that he didn't even have a tool that he could use on his own. He had to borrow an axe from somebody else. It seems strange to us, but an iron axe head was a luxury. It wouldn't just be used as an axe. It would be used as a plow. It would be used as a shovel. It would be used as anything and everything you could use iron for. And it was a valuable commodity in those days. As he's swinging the axe, I don't swing a lot of axes, so I don't know how they work, but you know, that little shim piece that goes in, maybe that came loose or whatever, but you can picture it, right? Like he's, you know, puts it over his shoulder and the head of the ax flies off down into the river. This is a big deal because Old Testament law taught that whenever someone lost or damaged something that he had borrowed, he had to replace it and make the loss as good as it was to the lender. This poor guy has nothing. He is training to serve God's people. Um, If he had to go and pay back the cost of that axe head, he wasn't going to be able to continue his schooling. Maybe he would have had to consider the same indentured servitude that we heard about in chapter four. Um, This was a big deal. And I'm I'm speculating here a little bit because the passage doesn't tell us this, but I suspect that he and the other sons of the prophets, when they see this axe head go flying into the river, they spend some time trying to find it, right? They're trying to dive down. They're trying to hold their breath. They're trying to see if anybody can find it. They're trying to search as best as they can, but it's no use. They can't find it. It's, it's gone. It is lost for forever. And they go to Elisha and they say, Elisha, this is borrowed. You know what this means. You know what it's going to take for us to replace this. What can we do? And Elisha says, guys, do you know who our God is? No crisis is ever hopeless as long as you cry out to God for help. So they cry out to God and God says, don't worry, guys, I got this. Elisha, he, he makes a stick 
or you know, he cuts a branch or something. Maybe it was about the size of the axe handle. We don't know. He throws it into the Jordan roughly where the axe head went. And then this axe head starts to float up to the top. And he's like, there it is. Just go fish it out. And so the guy goes, he fishes it out and we can assume puts it back on the handle and begins to chop more lumber. Here we can see why making God's presence a priority is so important. When we are living in God's presence, when we are inviting God's presence into all that we do, it's so easy to cry out to him because he's there with us. God, you know what I'm going through. God, you understand what I'm attempting. God, could you please help? The moment we turn to God at our time of crisis, even if it's less than perfect faith, even if it's less than fully informed faith, when we turn to God in desperation, he hears us. Even if it's a little more than, you know, simply, oh Lord, help. We have a loving heavenly father who hears us when we cry out to him and he comes to our aid. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God says, I want you to cry out to me when you have a crisis, because when you have a crisis and your thought is only God can save me, then not only do I save you, but also you glorify me by remembering that I'm the one that can save you. One of the best prayers anywhere in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 14, when Peter is walking on water. Remember, he, he sees Jesus and Jesus says, all right, if you want to come, come on out. And he gets distracted by the wind and the waves and the storm. And he looks down and he starts to sink. And as he is sinking, the only thing Peter has time to prayer is not, the only thing he has time to prayer is not our father who art in heaven. No, no. All he can say in that moment is, Lord, save me. And when he cries out in his desperation, Jesus is right there and comes to the rescue. There is no crisis that is ever hopeless when we can cry out to our God in the midst of it. So what can we learn from these miracles? What can we learn from, from soup and bread and axe heads? All three of these miracles happen to the same type of people, if not the exact same groups of people. They had prioritized serving God over everything else in their lives. And God, as a result, protected them. God provided for them. God rescued them. We can be assured of God's ability to save us. We are so quick to trust God when it comes to our eternal salvation, right? Like we, we prayed the prayer. We said, God, I need you to save me. I need you to forgive me. And we trust that he did that. But here God is showing these men, hey, I can save you from more than just the big things. I can save you from the financial things. I can save you from the health things. I can save you from the hunger things. I don't just want to save your soul. I want to save you as a person. Are we willing to trust him? Are we willing to trust God with our kids? Are we willing to trust God with our health? These first two miracles demonstrate to us that God can provide and that God can save. And I want to be careful about not reading too much here into the text, but as a pastor looking at this first miracle, it sure does make me feel good that the guy who messed up and put all these gourds and melons or whatever they were into the stew didn't kill everybody. That, make, like, that makes me feel really good because he was trying. He was doing his best, but sometimes our best still isn't good enough. And yet God did not need to, him to be perfect. 
for God to show up. God did not need him to be flawless for God to show up and make a difference. In times of crisis, when things happen that are out of our control, even when we did nothing wrong, even when we had the most noble of intentions, when crises occur, it's not a sign of a lack of God's faithfulness, but rather it is an opportunity for us to trust him and say, God, I know that you can save me. God, I know that you can deliver me. I know that you can protect me. And when that happens, we give God the ability to demonstrate his faithfulness to us even more. This soup gone wrong, this expensive axe head at the bottom of the river, were both ultimately used to glorify God. If something like extreme food poisoning or an extreme loss of wealth can be used to glorify God, how can God use the crises that we go through to point people towards him? How can God use the careless mistakes that we use to demonstrate that he is always at work? Because as God's people, we get a front row to see that we have a God who can protect and we have a God who can provide in such a way that we can't explain except by saying, my God is faithful, my God is sovereign. And this here is a little glimpse of what eternity with him is going to look like. This here is a little glimpse of what he can do and of what he will do for me in the future. God protects and God provides those who faithfully serve him. So why would we do anything but serve him faithfully? Why would we do anything but trust him when we know how trustworthy he is? God is faithful. And when crises happen and they're going to, we can either try to white knuckle and fix it or we can say, God, save me, because only you can. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are a God who saves. And you are not only a God who saves in the big and eternal things, but God, you are a God who saves in the day-to-day things that we go through. You are a God who protects. You are a God who intervenes when your people need you. So God, let me just say on behalf of our church, we need you. We need you, we need you, we need you. Father, we need you because we make careless mistakes that put ourselves and put others at risk. Father, we need you because the provision is not always what we hope it would be. Father, we need you because there are things that we can't pay back, but we know that you can. Father, would you save us? And would you be glorified in how we cry out to you? Father, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can depend on you. And thank you that you are a God who is at work on our behalf for our good and for your glory. God, help us to see the things that we go through as opportunities to praise you and as opportunities for you to be glorified in the way that we trust you. Father, bless us now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Larson.